0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Hey all Uh, my name's Arnaldo. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor Southwest, and I want to give a huge shout out to our Anchor City family, as 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 well as my own family here at Anchor Southwest. It's such a joy to gather together, albeit digitally, to sing and to pray together, to Uh, witness to God's goodness through uh, Scripture and table. Now, we're in the middle of this series in Exodus, A New Humanity, and the Lord has been good to us through this journey, and we're going to continue that today as we pause here and look at the Ten Words. You may know them as the Ten Commandments that Yahweh, the Lord God, gave to the people at Sinai. You know, these 10 words is the 10 commandments, but simply uh, stated, Exodus 20, verse 1 says this And God spoke all these words, saying, And because it's incredibly easy to interpret these 10 words as simply commandments, as holy to do lists, it's really important for us to get our bearings, because to read them as simply this kind of holy to-do list is to rob this moment in the biblical story of much of its formative and missional power. So first, we're going to look at the context of these 10 words, and then we're going to move on to look at the purpose of these 10 words, and then finally, we're going to give a survey of the content of these 10 words. But before we do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, We thank you that you, in fact, are here with us now. Wherever we are, scattered as the people of God, you are with us. And so I pray that we would witness to your goodness today. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful Help me to remember the things that will be. Keep us from error, Holy Spirit. And may those who are far come near, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, man, I missed that. And the church said, amen and amen. Now, depending on your political, religious, or otherwise moral preferences, uh, you may receive what I'm about to say differently. But I want to say this. The Ten Commandments have shaped much of our modern Western secular world. I haven't gone crazy. Uh, The Ten Commandments have shaped, in large part, our modern Western secular world. And whether we like it or not, these ten words given to these uh, recently emancipated group of ex-slaves over 3,000 years ago Has shaped our collective consciousness. It's shaped the way that we think. You may have grown up not knowing what the Ten Commandments were or memorizing them. Regardless, they have shaped our world. From the late notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, aka Frank White, shout out to Bed Stuy, and his own Ten Crack Commandments, a song that gives you Ten Commandments as to how to survive and thrive on the streets. From that, to a 2014 article that ran in the CNN entitled, quote-unquote, Behold, Your Atheist's New Ten Commandments. The biblical Ten Commandments have become that piece of furniture in our culture, like that old, musty kind of couch in your grandmother's living room that you don't even remember is there, but it's there. You can smell it when you walk in. right? And that article that CNN ran reported, uh, uh, was about an executive at Airbnb and an atheist chaplain from Stanford University. And what they did was they put it to the public and they said, give us your 10 best secular commandments. Give us all your wisdom. And after 2,800 entries, they assigned 13 adjudicators to kind of take the 2,800 entries and figure out which were the 10 best. And these were some of what they called the 10 non-commandments. The first one was be open minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Amen. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Amen. Boy. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control their own body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Over and over again, they, they have this wisdom, this, this secular, atheistic wisdom. Now, I'm not about to begin to, dis, you know, to dismantle these, most of which are really good. I just want to make the point that this, this is my point, that our modern Western consciousness, whether we like it or not, whether you are a hip-hop artist or a, an atheist chaplain at Stanford University, the 10 words have shaped indelibly our Western consciousness. And so it's really important that we understand not only what they say, but what they mean and the story that they are a part of. So what we're going to do, we're going to get to work with, uh, beginning with the context of The ten words. Chapter 19, verse 1 says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, from the time that they left Egypt, from this point, it's been about three months. They've been traveling for three months. And they're going to stay here for the next almost year, for about 11 months. They're going to encamp here right at Sinai, all the way through the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through the book of Leviticus, and all the way up to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. They're going to be right here at Sinai. These chapters are the heart of the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh. And this will shape Israel's national identity. This is an apex moment in the story for the people of God. This is where they receive their marching orders. And what we need to understand about the 10 words is that they are not a set of unrelated, dropped out of the sky rules that were given to the people of Israel as a pathway to salvation. These words, what we call the law, were not given to the people while they were in captivity in Exodus, rather in Egypt. They were given in Exodus. They weren't given to them while they were in captivity in Egypt. No, God had rescued them and had given them the law well after the fact. And these 10 words and the other 603 commandments that we find in the Torah were never, ever, 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 let me say this again, ever, ever, I hope this does autofocus, ever given to the people of God as a way to achieve or earn their salvation. And this is important because if we think that the 10 words, these 10 commandments are a pathway to salvation, we're going to do one of two things. We're going to do them in our own strength as best as we can and think that we can earn our way to God and become legalists, or we're going to throw them away and become what's called antinomians, antinomian, anti-law. And both ways will lead us into grave error. So the context of understanding these ten words and the rest of the law of Moses and the rest of the entire Hebrew Bible is always, always one where God's grace precedes, comes before Him ever outlining anything that we need to do in response to his action. Because this is the reality that in the economy of God, in the economy of God, I mean just the the way God works in the world, in the economy of God, grace always comes first. Then, and only then, does God give us the ways we are to respond, live into, live out of that grace And this grace has a purpose. The people of Israel were not to be rescued, were not rescued for their own sake alone. God is doing something with them, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the world. So if the context of these 10 words is grace, then check it out. The purpose of these 10 words is mission. If the context is grace, The purpose is mission. These 10 words are to be the spearhead in Israel's ethical and moral responsibility for the sake of the world. Israel's obedience is not a prerequisite for their deliverance. Let me say that again. Israel's obedience is not a prerequisite to their deliverance, but it is a consequence of their deliverance. You see, they've been delivered. That happened three months ago when Yahweh showed up on the scene and destroyed the the gods of Egypt, plague after plague after plague. You see, they've been delivered when Yahweh showed up at the Sea of Reeds and through a strong east wind all night set the sea apart. You see, they've been delivered when they walked through as if on dry ground. You see, they've been delivered, and now God is graciously showing them what it means to live as delivered people, to live as free people. Yahweh is about to show them what it looks like to live as his people for the sake of other people. That's a word. Scripture says this in verse 4. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle, bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now there, you see, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And ye, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice, excuse me, notice there, notice the narrative logic and flow here. First, you saw how I handled them boys. You saw how I handled them Egyptians. You saw that, right? You were there. When I carried you as, on, as if on eagle's wings, you saw that. Now tell me. Now, rather, now I'm going to tell you what it means to live free, to flourish. Obey my voice. Keep my covenant. That is how you will grow into the freedom that you were built for. I love the way that Chris Wright puts it when he says this. Obedience, then, is not ever a condition of salvation, nor here is obedience a condition of blessing. But obedience is emphatically a condition of mission. Only if God's people heed God's voice and keep God's covenant can they fulfill God's purpose and be what God wants them to be in the world. You see, the reason why many of us have a problem with obedience is because we think that being saved by Jesus terminates on us, that it ends with us. We carry around this this hyper-individualistic, weak, false version of the gospel that believes that God saves us just for us. We want to get the benefits of God's saving grace, but with the benefits come the responsibility of being what you were saved for. Embodying the purpose for which you have been rescued. You were rescued to be God's conduit of his saving love to a world that desperately needs it. So we need to understand that these two things, we need to understand these two things before we get into the 10 words themselves, that the context of the 10 words is grace and always grace. And the purpose of the 10 words is not only a relationship with Yahweh, but missional obedience. Chris writes again, he says this, that present obedience is thus set within the context of what? Past grace, what God has done, on the one hand, and future mission, what God is going to continue to do through you and I for the sake of the world. I love that. Like, I love that God, you know, he calls us to partner with him in the renewal of all things. But I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm getting ahead of myself. The content of the Ten Words. Let's get into the Ten Commandments themselves. Now, throughout the book of Exodus, it's interesting that Moses, the 80 year old Moses, goes up and down the mountain seven times. Up seven times, down seven times. In our chapter alone, it happens three times. In our chapters, it happens three times. Now, let me tell you, when I was 34, 35, I went and I did a trip to uh, Jordan and and Israel and uh, ended up going to a place called Petra where uh, this famous stone carving this treasury is at, and behind that there's this mountain that you can climb and it took me i think over an hour and let me tell you i did it once and i'm not looking forward to doing it again it was quite embarrassing i did it it was a feat but i can't imagine eight-year-old moses seven times up and down the mountain and before god delivers the commandments to the people he asks moses to get the people to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart, to get ready for the visitation of Yahweh. And they do so. And three days pass, and this happens in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like sm- the smoke of a of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The stage it's said the people are consecrated. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the tablets of the ten words. And whereas the last time Moses was here on this very mountain and God did come to visit it in fire, it was just a small bush that wasn't consumed. And now God is a consuming fire, as the book of Hebrews reminds us. And these are the ten words that Moses receives from Yahweh. Verse 1, and God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, uh, out of the house of slavery. And God begins with this preamble. And if this was a book, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 20 would be the preface. God is grounding what is to follow in his gracious act of already delivering Israel. And this is the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Yahweh is calling here for an absolutely exclusive relationship with his people. The monk turned reformer, Martin Luther, said that to keep this commandment is to keep the rest of them. This is the fountainhead of all the others. Yahweh is to receive our allegiance in a world where it was encouraged to worship many gods. Remember, they are only three months out of the land of Egypt, where they were steeped in a culture of polytheism, the the, the practice, the belief and practice uh, where you can worship many gods. Osiris, the god of the underworld, and his wife Isis. Horus, the god of the, of the sky and hunting. Seth, the god of violence and chaos and war. Ta, who was the head of a triad of gods associated with craftsmen and builders. Re, who was one of the many gods associated with the sun. Hathor, the goddess of motherhood and fertility. Amon, the god of the air, and, and many others. And because they were formed in a culture where this was simply what was out of the gate. They need to go through somewhat of a rehabilitation process. And there being one true God was the very first thing they needed to commit to, even as the fallen powers and principalities paraded as supreme gods. Yahweh is to receive exclusive worship and allegiance from his people, because at the heart of what has gone wrong with the world, at the heart of what has gone twisted with the world, is idolatry. Idolatry is assigning ultimate value and worth to someone or something that doesn't deserve it, that isn't built for it. The only being in the universe that is worthy of such absolute allegiance is God. Everything else stands in the category of things created and therefore are not worthy to be worshipped. And because that is a fact, worshipping anything that is, uh, not, that, that is created to be worshipped, uh, rather, because that is a fact, worshipping anything that is not created to be worshipped ends up destroying the worshipper. Let me say that again. Worshipping anything that is not created to be worshipped, ends up destroying the worshipper. Because idols, and that's anything that we can think about assigning ultimate value and worth and dignity to, anything other than God that we worship could never deliver its promises. We end up dehumanizing ourselves as we pursue the worship of any created thing. And if we think because we don't bow down to statues in our late modern individualistic Western culture that we are free from idolatry, then we are deluded. In an age where we want to do away with religion by creating the 10 secular non-commandments, we sure do have a knack of filling in the gap of the uh, from the lack of formal religion. Because the reality is that wherever we find our ultimate meaning, wherever we find our ultimate purpose, and worth is our religion. It is what we are worshiping. It is what we are giving our religious devotion to. Which means that while many of us may not have grown up in polytheistic cultures, we are just as prone to worship other gods. The idol of career advancement, where we sacrifice our health and our family in order to quote-unquote make it, whatever that means in your industry. The idol of politics, where we believe that our salvation is found in the party that is voted in, holding a particular view that makes us righteous. The idol of parenting, where our worth and value is found in the success and the behavior of our children. The idol of relationships, where marriage is salvation and singleness is hell, or at least purgatory. The idol of health, where someone's value in our society is tied to the circumference of their waste. We take what may be good things, and we make them ultimate things, and in the process, our souls Are shriveled. Idolatry, breaking the first commandment, the first word, is not just wrong in a moral sense, although it is, it's bad for us. It ends up destroying us. Anything and just about everything in our culture has morphed into something that we can go ahead and derive our value and worth from. And that's why uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, he says that the human heart is like an idol factory. We need to do a whole sermon series on this one single text, but we have to move. The second word is this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, excuse me, of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is, Yahweh is commanding the Israelites to not limit their creator God with a creator, with a created thing. This will be their downfall later on in the incident of the golden calf, which will be unpacked in a couple of weeks. But suffice to say that now Israel was not to mimic the practices of their surrounding culture where gods were assigned creaturely features, heads of eagles and Uh, uh, bodies of bulls and calves. There is no inanimate object in this world that can stand in the place of the living God of Israel. See, because what what would happen is uh, these images would be made, would be carved out, and it was then believed uh, that the spirit of said God would then reside in that very thing. But the spirit of God cannot reside in something that is inanimate. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the third word says. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we're going to pause here for a second. Growing up in my uh, religious community, I was taught that using religious words like God or Jesus in frustration, maybe coupled with the word damn, was the epitome of taking the Lord's name in vain. That was the roof But was Moses limiting the third word to the times where you stub your toe or step on Lego or receive that inane email from a colleague? Now, I'm not saying that it's okay to cuss. There are plenty of warnings in the scriptures to remind us to guard our tongue, something that I need to often go back to in my own frustration. But if that's all that we take God to mean, that we don't cuss, then we gut the commandment of its force and its power. To take the Lord's name in vain is to attach God's name, his reputation, to purposes that were not his. For instance, when governments invoke the name of God in their particular vision for society, the way that uh, the ex-president Donald Trump held up that Bible in the front of St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., or when uh, Joe Biden uh, used the call of the prophet Isaiah to encourage the U.S. armed forces when the Taliban seized control of Kabul. Uh, That is taking the Lord's name in vain. That is assigning, that is prostituting God's name to a cause that isn't his or when husbands abuse their god-given authority to lead as servants in their homes and they misuse scripture by abusing their wives and their children that is taking the Lord's name in vain when you say that God told me to further your own cause when it's on whether it's on the world the stage of world politics or the pulpit or your personal relationships you are taking the Lord's name in vain. And in so doing, you are diminishing God by instrumentalizing Him. You are pimping out God's name for your own ends. It is a holy version of name-dropping. And God simply says, listen, don't do that. Because to disregard the worth that is Yahweh is not something that is object, not just something that is objectively wrong, but in the end harms us in the process and brings disrepute to Yahweh, and therefore impeding the mission. Of God. We continue here. The next commandment is this. The next word is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now imagine. Imagine yourself at the foot of this mountain, physical scars, possibly uh, still being healed, as you took beatings from uh, being a slave to Pharaoh's building project, psychological scars maybe that won't possibly ever fade. Can you imagine the exhaustion? And then hearing that you are being commanded, you're being invited into stopping for one 24-hour period each week to rest, to delight in neighbor, to delight in God, to delight in creation and this commandment is for all coming from a society where only the rich or the citizen the elite were able to rest a society where each and every one of them were subjected to working 7 days a week with absolutely no respite to be commanded to rest and this fourth commandment serves as something of a bridge of what was uh, what's called the two tablets of The law the first tablet deals with Israel's vertical relationship with Yahweh, while the second tablet deals with the horizontal relationships within Israel herself. And this fourth commandment does both. Israel is called to honor God's economy of time, as well as bring every aspect of their life under this divine interplay between work and rest. From livestock to citizens, women, men, children, immigrants, everyone was to rest. Everyone. Because to to, to do so was to honor the way God created the world. It was living within the grain of the universe for the sake of its flourishing. And the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now the fifth commandment is not a commandment to simply obey your parents, but to show them dignity and respect. This word honor is a is a is a heavy heavy word. I was gonna say heavy word, but it literally means heavy. It's the same word that is used. In, in respects of giving glory to God. That word glory is the same word, honor. The nuclear family of parents and children living in a home in close proximity, though, with others is not just a modern invention, but it, it, it's an internal dynamic that where homes flourish, society flourishes. And part of that internal dynamic is just that. It's, it's the honor that children are to give to their Parents. And while that honor looks like obedience when children are, are, I want you to listen, kids, God commands you to obey your parents. Now, Paul, he rounds that out in the New Testament when he says, Fathers, now don't provoke your children, so I don't want to be a hypocrite here. We preached that in Ephesians just a couple months ago. But here, he's saying, Honor your parents. There is a dynamic there that as the nuclear family goes, so goes society. And when children are dependent, that looks like obedience, but when they're not, it looks like support. And part of that, yeah. there's so much more to say here, and you'll have to forgive me for rushing uh, through these, and I hope that you guys will have some time and space in your gospel communities to discuss this, but we must move on. Chapter 20, verse 13 says this, You shall not murder. Fourteen, You shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And finally, the 10th and final word here is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. Anything that is your neighbor's. And here in this second tablet of the law, we find this constellation of commandments that govern the way of flourishing for the people of God in community. We're not to take life because life belongs to God alone. We're not to betray the love and the trust, uh, the trusting union between one man and one woman and holy matrimony, because by doing so, we are tearing apart what God has brought together. We're not to take what is not ours, whether that be people or time or resources or ideas. We're not to testify falsely against our neighbor. Now this is a commandment to guard honesty and fairness and equity in every area of life, but especially in the law courts. All of these commandments that govern our community life are easy to see. They are outside of themselves. There are things that we do, but this last one is a little bit weird. The last one has to do with motivations and internal workings of the heart, of the imagination that will lead to murder, that could lead to adultery, that could lead to taking what is not yours, that could lead to bearing false witness if you are being Bribed, And this flies in the face of the idea that the Ten Commandments are about some sort of uh, external compliance to rules in order to be accepted by God. The Ten Commandments, these ten, these ten words are pathways that recalibrate our whole selves to the kingdom of God. But what does this all mean for us today in light of the climax of the biblical story found in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ? And as Christians, are we bound to obey the ten words? Now, with the little time that we have left, the answer is simply yes. Yes, we are bound to obey the spirit of the law while understanding that Christ himself is the fulfillment, the telos, the end, the culmination of the entire Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets. Terence Fratham he says this from a New Testament perspective. He's a, he's a scholar and a commentator. He says, Christians have, uh, Christians have not been made exempt from these provisions. In fact, Matthew 5, 17 to 29 states that the commandments are not to be relaxed at all, but pushed to their deepest level in the human spirit. That's why Jesus says, oh, you have heard. Oh, you have heard, but I say, oh, you have heard, but I say. Fratham continues, the one who is in Christ is liberated to do the works of the law, not as a vehicle. You need to hear this. You are liberated to do the law, not as a vehicle for remaining a Christian, but as instruction for shaping a life of faith active in love. And I want to add this, also to be active in mission. But when we form our ideas about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, primarily in ways of just receiving salvation, in isolation from what we are saved for, that is mission, then we fall into a whole world of trouble because obedience does matter. You, You need to hear this. Obedience matters. Embodying a different ethic distinct from the world for the sake of the world, right? Because so often when, when we've heard about obedience, we've we've heard it as a way for people, uh, 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 for people who obey to kind of clobber the people who don't. But that is not what I'm talking about. That is not what the scriptures talk about. That is not what Moses is doing here. That is not what the Spirit is doing in our church today. He's saying this, obedience matters for the sake of mission, for the sake of The world. Exodus is not, rather, Exodus is about God redeeming a people and giving them a new way of being in the world for the sake of the flourishing of the world. We need to grow up from these ways of thinking that obedience doesn't matter, it matters to the mission of God. And the story reaches its climax in the person and the work of Jesus as he fulfills the law and we are united to him by faith and he gives us his spirit. Being saved isn't just about escaping hell. It is about joining God in the renewal of all things. And Israel and these 10 words were given as a way that they would fulfill the calling to be a holy nation and a priesthood for the world, which Peter says is ours now. You see, if, if you think about the Ten Commandments or any imperatives, any commands that are given to us in Scripture as pathways leading towards salvation, then we're going to get it all wrong. We are saved by God's free and precious grace, the gracious gift of abundant grace. It is pure gift. And the commandments then are given to us as we partner with the Spirit that we would be what He has called us to be. And Jesus summarizes the whole law when He's asked, which is the greatest commandment? He's asked by some of the Pharisees. And Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul and with all of your minds. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. The law is love. The measure will be love. And because we have been given the Holy Spirit, we are not excused from the law per se, but we are given everything we need in order to be God's missional presence in the world. And this is why when Jesus is about to be uh, handed over, when he's about to be betrayed and crucified, when he's up with his boys up in the upper room, this is what he says to them in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you that you what? that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Man, this is, this is one of the most penetrating texts in my life right now. We are to love one another. God, forgive me. We are to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love will be the measure. The measure will be love. And so at the end of the day, the 10 words are summed up in this way. Love God, love others. I could have saved you the trouble and just said that. And the rest of the biblical narrative shows us that, the God, that God knows that we can't in our own power love well. So he will step in and not just write these laws on tablets, but he will write them on our hearts. He will inscribe them on our hearts through the person and the work of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Because this is the reality that God, God is renewing the world. He is remaking it, and the foundation will be the blood-stained cross, the empty tomb, the occupied throne, and he's calling each and every one of us to follow him, to become part of the renewal project, to become part of the divine family. God is creating this new humanity, humanity through Jesus, and you have an opportunity while today, listen, you have an opportunity that while today is still called today to follow him to repent of the ways that you have worshipped created things that you have fashioned false idols in your hearts and if this is you and you want to you want to re- repent you want to return to god we, we want to know that you were here. We, we want to uh, help you on your journey towards faith. And so there's going to be something, a button where you can press that you give, you commit your life to Jesus. But don't just do that. Reach out to one of us. Uh, there should be a prayer button somewhere as well. Please let us know that you want to follow Jesus. And if you consider already yourself a follower of Jesus, of Jesus, what does it look like for you to stop playing games with the Almighty? Where is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Where are you living in blatant and open disobedience to what you know God is calling you? You know God is calling you to this. What is hindering you embodying his missional presence in and for the sake of the world? We have one who has gone before us, a great high priest who knows that we are but dust, but glorious dust We are. May we walk in his freedom, anchor church, in his power, in his name for the sake of the world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Uh, We thank you that you, Lord, go before us in your grace. We thank you that you do not wait for us to obey to extend your grace to us. But because you have, we are now free. We are free people. We can live with the grain of the universe. We no longer have to uh, submit ourselves to lies and to sin, but we are free to do your will. We are free to be your missional people of love in the world. Help us to be just that, we pray, in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Love you guys.